Uh, I'm sitting on one of those chairs that could annoy you because I'll start swinging from side to side. So I've got, I keep reminding myself, sit still, Brian, sit still. Uh, really, uh, these are interesting times. I'm sure every speaker you have goes, these are interesting times, but this is fascinating for 24 seven prayer in the last uh, year. We have seen an over 250% increase in prayer rooms around the world. So we've seen three and a half thousand prayer rooms in 110 different nations in the last 12 months, all virtual people, and, and the engagement is off the charts. So the prayer course that was released in April, no, uh, the previous year, the new one with Poppy, three million downloads. Mike Andrea, our new leader, who's currently phoning me, and I'm just gonna like, hang up. Sorry about that. There's nothing, you, when it's all linked, your laptop and everything, it's a nightmare, isn't it? There's always something's gotta go wrong. Uh, so. Yeah, I mean, prayer course, 3 million downloads. I don't know if any of you are involved uh, or listen to Lectio uh, 365. It's really helpful. But we actually had a, 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 a message from someone in Vanatua, which is a, an island in the Pacific Ocean, saying we're using Lectio. We want to get it. We want to get it translated. Can we do that? So amazing. And uh, just before Pentecost, the Archbishop of Canterbury has done two of them for us. So we managed to blag him into recording a couple. So loads of fun, 150,000 people using that every month, over 300,000 downloads of the, of the app. So we're, I mean, so for us, whilst ver uh, real doors were closed, virtual doors have been opened and God is seemingly on the move and people like never before are really hungering and thirsting after prayer. So exciting times, but I'm not here to talk about prayer, even though I do work for 24-7 prayer, I'm here to talk about Abraham. By the way, if you're going to look at God's story, can I just recommend the book? It's the Oxford Handbook of Biblical Narrative. It'll help you understand the whole God story thing on a deeper level. So uh, if you ever get a chance to grab hold of that, get yourself a copy. All good. Anyway, we're going to look at Abraham today. I don't know. We all have different views and we're probably all a little bit aware of Abraham in the story of the Bible. It's a he's a key figure. He is the, the father of the, uh, the, the children of Israel. Uh, uh, it's Paul talks about him in Galatians and says this in Galatians 3 verse 6 to 7. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand stand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. So when we say that Abraham is important, we, the people of faith, the Christians, we uh, are children of Abraham. We're children of faith. And so when I look at Abraham and the story of Abraham in the Bible, we see that it is a story of faith. And, and faith is so important, obviously, for all of us. So let's have a look. Uh, this journey of faith that Abraham goes on and this journey that then leads to him possessing land, going in, all that kind of stuff. So let's, we'll start with this. Uh, it says in Psalm 84, verse 5, blessed are those whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. And if you look at Abraham, you'll see that he was on this journey. His heart was set on pilgrimage. In Acts, it would, there's this beautiful little moment, right? In Genesis 11, verse 31, right? This is about Abraham's father. Terah took his son, Abraham, it's called Abraham then, that's important. His grandson, Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law, the wife of his son, Abraham. And together they set out for Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. They settled there. Interestingly, Abraham's father had set out to go to Canaan. Talks about that in Acts, actually. But he had set out to go to Canaan, but he had come to Haran 
in at the end of Genesis 11, which was a place for trading, a place where they traded camels. There was lots of uh, through traffic. It's a very busy place, lively place, interesting place to be. And it doesn't say that uh, Terah got it wrong. It just says he settled. He settled there. And I think that's a really fascinating, interesting thing for each one of us is that where do we settle? There are times to settle, obviously, but Terra settled. And then we read this. In, we just keep going. Genesis 12. Now, if you were going to read a part of the Bible, that I would say was incredibly important. Adam Cox would say that the Genesis 12 is a wedding day moment. It's one of those moments that, you know, you don't forget your wedding day. I hope you don't. You know. And wedding, a wedding day moment, Genesis 12, is one of those wedding day moments of the Bible. It's incredibly important. It's one that we need to look at in detail. It's important because it highlights who we're meant to be and where we're meant to be going. But it also puts in some foundations around Abraham. So we come to Abraham properly in Genesis 12. He set out of his dad in, in, in Genesis 11. His dad settled. And then it says it's Genesis 12, verse 1 to 4. I hope you've got your Bibles with you. I didn't do a PowerPoint, Charles, because I had too many buttons to press. And then, we'd, it, I don't know, something could go horribly wrong. I just thought I'd better just waffle on. Uh, Terah took his son. Oh, no, I said that one. The Lord had said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him. It's this huge thing that God says to Abraham, and it's just like in verse four, it's just like, so Abraham went as the Lord had told him. Uh, really, really interesting. And by the way, if I keep looking over, just got my notes over here. And Christy, I cut my own hair. And it, it's what we call Zoom hair, because like there's, at the back, it's a nightmare, right? So like, I'm basically shaved aside, shave here, but no one can see behind it. So I do it myself. And that's just, that's the way forward. But no one's going to see like how butchered I've done it at the back. So it's Zoom head. And I'm just waiting for when like a hairdresser can come. She, last time I went to her after the last lockdown, she went, Brian, you've mullered this at the back. Absolutely mullered it. But never mind. These things happen. Uh, so Genesis 12, 1 to 4, this great moment. It's significant, life-changing moment in the life of Abraham. God says, initially God says three things. Go from your country, your people, and your father's house. So go from your country, your people and your father's household. I think it's really interesting. The first one is this. And it all happens in verse one. OK, <laughs> go from your country. The first thing God asks Abraham to do is to geographically relocate. You know, uh, we're all called, by the way, to a new land. We're all called as Christians to step into something new. And, you know, the thing about a geographical relocation is you have to say goodbye to something. I've done it. I've geographically relocated. And it means saying goodbye. And Abraham, to step in to all that God had for him, to step into the promises, to be a man of faith, like Paul talks about, he had to say goodbye. To, for ge geographical relocation means that we have to say goodbye. And I, I, just, I love uh, Lord of the Rings. And I, I, I do sometimes, uh, Christians use it way too much, but I'm still, I'm there. I'm, I'm going for it. I actually just finished the second draft of my next book, which I've got to have to the publishers tomorrow. And I did a little quote from Lord of the Rings in the book. And I went, this wouldn't really be a Christian book unless someone quoted Lord of the Rings. Anyway, 
so this this is a little bit in a in in the Hobbit, which says it talks about the other dwarfs singing, and as they sang, the Hobbit the Hobbit felt the love of beautiful things made by hands and by cunning and by magic moving through him, a fierce and jealous love, the desire of the hearts of dwarves. Then something Turkish awoke inside him and he wished to go and see the great mountains and hear the pine trees and the waterfalls and explore the caves and wear a sword instead of a walking stick. So Bilbo's retired, he settled down in his little house and along come these dwarves and something awakens in him. It says something Turkish you know, awakens in him and it's a desire to go on adventure. And there's something in, in I think, in there's something almost Abrahamic about this, that, that God says to, to Abraham, leave, go. And Abraham has to say goodbye. And there's something in us that should look at movement as exciting. I uh, love that Christy mentioned about, you know, God responds to, or child, God responds to movement. There is something about it that's incredibly exciting. So the first thing that Abraham does is geographical relocation. We could learn something about that. What do we need to say goodbye to? What do we need to say goodbye to? And then the next thing he says is, leave your people. That's, that's right. First of all, like just saying goodbye, moving, you know, that's one thing. This time, he's, this is about like identity. You know, who, who do you identify as? You're Terah's son. No, no, go start your own tribe. You're Abraham, you know. And so I do really think there is something about tribal dislocation. So the first one is geographical relocation. The second one is tribal dislocation. You know, whenever we're asked to step into new cultures, whenever we go to new places, whenever we meet new people, they're not our tribe. And we can sometimes feel dislocated, discombobulated, a little bit all over the show. I don't quite know how to be here. I don't quite know how to act with these people. But there is this call on Abraham that he was to be a man of uh, tribal dislocation. Don't just get locked down in this, with, with this, in this one space with this one people. And then God says an interesting, you know, so a, another interesting thing is, and leave your father's house. I, that's the most fascinating one. Because, like, that isn't just tribal dislocation. That isn't just geographical relocation. This is historical reorientation. By leaving your father's house, it means you have to think in new ways, the ways that you never fought before. Terra did it this way, but you know, you've got to reorientate. The old ways are not the new ways. God is calling us to new things. You know, uh, my, my, listen, to give you an example, my father's house was way different from doing church than the house that I live in now, okay? I mean, my literal father. I think a couple of years ago, uh, Tracy and I got invited to go to, uh, to the same Munich. It was in Germany somewhere. I'm really, I don't mean to be super specific. Uh, it, was, it was actually, it was a place called Altotting and it was the Emmanuel community, the huge Catholic charismatic community. There's 3000 of them meeting and we had to go and speak there. And I remember telling my dad, so Tracy was speaking and we were going to this huge Catholic thing. It was the largest Marian shrine in Europe. Okay. So it's kind of like weird, but interesting. And I remember telling my dad, listen, we're going to go, we're speaking here, Tracy speaking, and we're speaking to Catholics. Now, my dad is a Protestant man in his 70s who grew up in East Belfast, Northern Ireland. So he's not got issues with Catholics, but he's frightened of them. He doesn't really know a lot about them. Okay, so, and also he's grown up in a very traditional church, which were in the past, women didn't speak. Okay. So I know you wouldn't imagine it, but there was a time where it was only men, which is quite scary. Uh, 
let's not go there. It's not. Un- and so, so he says to me, I say, oh, we're going to this Catholic thing. Tracy's speaking. And he looked at me and went, Brian, be very careful. <laughs> because it was a different way of thinking, not his way of thinking. And it's fine. I just laughed like I did then. Just, just don't, you know, you got to, you, sometimes you got to laugh at your parents. Not all the time, but sometimes. Okay. So, you know, it's historical reorientation. Sometimes we're called for new thinking, new ways of doing things. For, so for one, this God in Genesis 12, the first thing is geography, saying goodbye. The second thing is identity. Who's your tribe? Who you're part of? And the, and the third one is thinking, new ways of thinking, which is really, really important that we see that. And that's, and that's God at the beginning of this journey of faith, that's God stepping into the story and taking the story right down to an individual and saying, if, if you're going to move this thing along, if you're going to keep going, if you're going to be a man of faith, if we're going to see redemption finally be outworked. You're going to have to think differently. You're going to have to be willing to say goodbye to stuff and it's going to affect your identity. And so, so what does Abraham do? It just says, I'll go. He goes. And then Genesis 12, verse 2, which is equally as important, God says three things to him then. There's lots of three things here, by the way, today, if that's okay. And I hope I'm not boring you to death or anything like that, but I, I love Genesis. Love it. So he says this, I will make you a great nation. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Genesis 12, verse 2. That's a, that, wow. But don't, if it's really fascinating. Abraham actually says yes to, I will make you a great nation. Right. He says yes to living for something he will never see. Get that right. He says yes to living for something that he will never see. It is beyond him. He will not witness his tribe become a great nation in his lifetime. Says yes to that. Okay, And that would be realistic to him. He he wouldn't have thought his ego. No way. No man's ego thinks one day I'll be a great nation. So he's just okay. I'll go for that. Second thing is, I will make your name great. Right? There's lots of stuff there, but, but most of the commentators, a guy called Kidner, he says, basically, this is ambiguous. Don't really know what it means. And Abraham wouldn't really have known what it meant. Okay. And then, and the third thing is this, and you will be a blessing. Rather than be blessed, you'll be a blessing. It's really interesting, isn't it? So, so God says to him, listen, I'm going to make you a great nation. So live for something you'll never see. Uh, I'll make your name great, ambiguous, uh, and you'll be a blessing. So you've got to give it all away. It's not quite what we live for, is it? And so Abraham says, yeah, I'll go. I'll go. I will go and live for something that I'm never going to see. I will step out into something ambiguous, and I will be a blessing to others rather than seek a blessing myself. As an amazing, those two verses, Genesis 12, one and two you can spend so long on them there's so many commentators that look so deeply into them the first one is all about this kind of movement on and the second one is about what god asks abraham to do and at the end of that abraham just is obedient that's why in the new testament they always look back and they commend abraham for his faith because he was obedient he stepped out and you know interestingly he his obedience was was uh just he couldn't quite see what it was going to be you know it says it says it says in the word of god that we live by faith not by sight so abraham steps into something that he can't quite see because we're called to live by faith not by sight and a lot of time as a christian we want sight god i will go here if you show me god i will do this if you do that 
You know, we, 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 we off, we're always kind of asking God for sight. Abraham just set out on, you know, in faith. He, you know, absolute faith. And interestingly, in Genesis 12, verse 7 to 8, it says this, right? The, what little segue before we get to 7 to 8 is he went with other people. We don't always go on this journey of faith on our own, okay? He took other people with him. He took Lot and his family. So we'd never journey on the journey of faith on our own. We always journey with others. It's a precedent set right down in Genesis 12, right at the beginning. This is not something that we outwork on our own. Your faith is not an individualistic thing. Of course, your salvation will save you. And sometimes we talk about like individual salvation. I totally get that. I know what we mean by that. But we know man is an island. We do not work this stuff out on our own. We go on this journey together. We go on this journey in close proximity to one another. We are on a journey of faith as a family together towards something. And we help and we, we encourage one another in that and so Abraham sets out with others and the first thing he does is he pitches his tent Genesis 12 verse 7 to 8 so he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him and there he went on towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord so he kind of like celebrates God but here's really fascinating if you were to look at that you'll see there's just two things that are really special about Abraham he pitched a tent and he built an altar he pitched a tent and he built an altar here's the deal a tent is temporary an altar is permanent when he moved the altar remained and the tent went away. And we are called to be a people who build altars. You know, the altar carries both sacrifice and worship. Altars are like flags in the ground that point to God when we have gone. There's this call upon our lives to build altars and pitch tents. See, he didn't build a house because he built. you build a house, it's for you. You pitch a tent, it's temporary. He understood the temporary nature of his travail, his sojourn, his journey on the earth. And he built an altar. And I think what we learn from Abraham is that he always built altars. Yeah, he built altars. And, and in many ways, when we, when we uh, serve the Lord, what we leave behind should outlive us. Uh, for instance, I, Tracy and I, when we lived in Ibiza, we would have seen that as we built an altar to the Lord. It's not about us anymore. Do you know what I mean? We're not there. It's about other people. You know, it's, it, 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 we, if, we, if we get what we're building, if what we are building gets so tied up in our identity, that gets this blurry line between a tent and an altar. And so you have to be able to pitch your tent and move on and leave the altar. You know, and it's really, really important. Abraham could do that. He could build everywhere he went. He built altars, things that always pointed to God and never pointed towards him. He pitched a tent and he built an altar. I found that really, really interesting and fascinating. And you could do. A, I know that John Tyson in New York has done a whole talk on altars, actually a series on altars. All of these, by the way, I'm just giving you like highlights. Is that is that OK? And you could dig deeper. God's story, you know. Uh, so so I found that fascinating that you just start to get a bit of an understanding of the man he would say i'll go you know it's ambiguous i'll go and then when he goes he kind of like takes people with him so he's community orientated and then and then he builds altars he doesn't build buildings he doesn't think well i'm going to build myself a mansion here and the thing he really builds is for god 
And so Abraham is always building for God. I mean, I mean, and, and then really fascinating. It is quite interesting that he was also flawed and human. So uh, before we make Abraham just like the perfect person, actually only have to get to Genesis 12, still still in Genesis 12, by the way. And, and verse 11 to 13, you see that like 10, let's go 10 to 16 is amazing. So they get hungry and they go to Egypt and then Sarah, Abraham's wife, gets kind of like in a bit of a situation with, with Pharaoh because Abraham says, she's not my wife, she's my sister. I mean, all sorts of weirdness happens, right? So here's the interesting thing is when we set out on vision, when God gives us a vision, God gave Abraham a vision to travel to Canaan, you know, dislocate, relocate, reorientate, off he goes, ambiguous, building altars. It's all looking good. He's got a posse of people with him. And then all of a sudden hunger nearly derails him you know and so i tell you what can derail a vision is hunger is what you don't have do you understand hunger is what you don't have and so he's looking you know when you if you hunger requires faith okay yeah, it really does it just you, uh, we need to god will provide is basically what but he didn't do that he thought egypt will provide in a kind of really strange precursor to Egypt later on down the line and also you'll read about that with anyway I'm just going to talk about Hagar but Tracy said don't talk about Hagar because I've just written a 4,000 word essay on Hagar and I could take us down like a track that we'd, we'd never get out of so anyway uh hunger you know they're hungry Genesis 12 verse 10 they get hungry so that means they start to be aware of what they don't have you know uh, there's often a real focus in our culture about what we don't have actually consumerism tells us you don't have this you need this you know, if Paul says in Romans 12, therefore do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, one of the patterns of this world is consumerism, isn't it? You know, this is what you need, this is what you need, this is what you need. And so, so Abraham gets hungry and, he, and he get, the vision almost gets derailed. And then, and the other thing is right in the middle, he gets fearful because he thinks Egypt, he's in Egypt and he's saying, oh no, my wife, Sarah, yeah, they're going to they're gonna do something weird. So let's just say she's my sister. So his fear nearly derailed. First of all, his hunger nearly derails the vision. Focusing on what you don't have can derail your vision. Fear can derail your vision. He's frightened. He thinks something bad's going to happen. You mustn't let fear derail. You know, you step out and you make some audacious plans. You make some, you have some big ideas. You sense this is where we're going. This is what we're going to do. And somewhere in the middle you think, oh my goodness, have we made a mistake? Is this wrong? Fear creeps in. So you've got to be careful about that. And then finally, wealth. So Pharaoh starts giving him, giving Abraham loads of stuff. You know, so if one is about what you don't have, the other is what you do have. <laughs> that seriously can derail your vision. You, you know why it can derail your vision? Because you're frightened of giving it away. You know, so wealth is what you do have. Wealth, right? So listen, sorry, don't me say listen. I mustn't say that, right? Uh, <laughs> hunger is what you don't have. Hunger requires faith. So to go to Egypt because they're hungry. Fear derails vision because fear requires trust wealth derails vision because wealth is what you do have and wealth requires sacrifice wealth requires sacrifice and it actually takes disease and a deportation to get abraham back on track so so he sets out on this journey and he, and he gets sidetracked and you've got to understand it will come we will get sidetracked it's just we need to hear the voice of god when he points us back in the right direction and the po the voice of god came to abraham from pharaoh who booted him out of the country and set him off again and interestingly when he gets out of egypt having dealt with the you know all the stuff where it's gone wrong still in genesis 12 the first thing he does builds an altar 
It's like he remembers, oh yeah, it's not about me, it's about you, God. Build an altar. So just that interesting stuff there around Abraham in that Genesis 12, you know, he reconnects, he builds an altar. And so, so you can see how this is so important for us as Christians and in the story of God, that the redemptive process, the redemptive journey that God takes us on is one where he brings, you know, Abraham, it gets boiled down to a specific person who has to make a certain response. And he makes that response in a faith filled way. But the narrator of Genesis likes to show us that Abraham wasn't perfect and that he gets derailed by going to Pharaoh and, you know, getting hungry, getting fearful, getting wealthy, all that stuff. But then he comes back on track. And I find that, the, you know, what they say about like uh, the, 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 the writers of the first five books of the Bible is that they don't, they don't try and explain the narrative. They don't say, they don't try and excuse it. They just tell you as, as it was, that's what he did. This is what he did. He, he, he started off on the journey. He was full of faith and he slipped up and he got a bit off the edge and then he got back on again. And then he gets a big, up, bit off the edge again because he still, some, you know, it, it, it's like boom, 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 boom. And there's something about that God knows that we're fragile and God, and, and God is a God of grace. It's fascinating because we, we all would imagine that we don't really get into grace until we get into the New Testament. But you only have to look at this right early on. There are only 12 chapters into the Bible and God is exhibiting grace. And we see grace starting to leak through and we see faith starting to build. It's, it's just a really interesting time. So then, he, then, then it moves on, right, to uh, there's, a, there's a various, there's Potiphar, there's all sorts. I could, I could, you know, and not Potiphar, sorry, that was Joseph. So there's lots, Sodom and Gomorrah, all that kind of stuff. There's too much detail there, but you should look at it because it is about like, once again, uh, it's interesting that Lot, when, when they split the land between Lot and Abraham, because there's two of them, their tribes getting quite big. They're, you know, they've got quite a lot of shepherds. A, Lot looks to one side, he says, it looks lush and green and all of that. And Abraham looks and it's like to the desert and Abraham goes, I'll go there. And because uh, they reckon that's because Abraham lived by faith, not by sight. And Lot looked at all the green stuff and thought, I'll go there. Do you know what I mean? So Lot lived by Lot lived by sight, not by faith. And Lot sight got him in trouble. Whereas Abraham said, no, I'm going to go here. It doesn't really matter about what I see. It's who I believe in that really matters. So that all happens in the middle. And then Abraham then at the same time tries to tries to make God's work, do God's work for him. So Hagar, you know, uh, which is like, boom, I'm going to try and have a baby through Hagar. Happens, but it's not the way it was meant to be. And then we move on. And so by then you've gone through all these various little bits and we get to Genesis chapter 17. I think it's a really important. So Genesis 12, read the stuff in the middle. Genesis 17, really important. So God has this, once again, he reconfirms the promise with Abraham. So the, the reconfirmation of the promise goes like this. Genesis 17, verse 5 to 8. No longer will you be called Abraham. Your name will be Abraham. Sorry, I've been saying Abraham all the way through. No longer will you be called Abraham. Your name will be called Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I'll make nations of you and kings will come for you. I'll establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. And I will be their God. So he sets out on a kind of generic journey 
that God makes specific. And God responds to his faith by making things more specific as he goes along. Do you understand? So it's generic, doesn't quite see what, how it's all going to pan out, doesn't see what it's all going to look like. And then God comes along and says, this is what it's going to look like. There's, there are four things in the covenant that is made in Genesis 17, four that we need to look at. Verse five, it's personal. Verse six, domestic. Verse seven, spiritual. Verse eight, territorial. So God makes four promises. One is personal, one is domestic, one is spiritual, one is territorial. Verse five, uh, no longer will you be called Abraham. Your name will be Abraham, for I've made you father of many nations. So Abraham means father. Abraham means father of a multitude. Okay, father of a multitude. So God does something. There is personal transformation in the covenant. God gives him a new name. You see that with, uh, you, you see that in other parts. Paul gets a new name. Yeah. Uh, Jacob gets a new name. You'll be called Israel. So because God is really, in, I think when we talk about names, especially in, in that culture at that time, in Chaldean culture, names are really important, like more important than they are now. We like, someone this week was telling me about the names they're going to call their baby. And I was like, do any of these mean anything? Do you know what I mean? Uh, they probably do, by the way. Uh, we were going to call our youngest son Daniel Seamus, but when we told everybody, people laughed, and we were like, oh, we'll call him Daniel then. No, it wasn't quite that. That. You know, the funniest thing about when we had Daniel was, right, right, so we called my eldest son Ellis William Heasley. My dad's name is William, right? So then when Dan was born, Tracy's mum and dad, my wife, mum and dad came to the, the hospital, and, and I thought we were going to call Daniel Tracy's dad's name, which is Edwin. Right. So I thought we're going to call him Daniel Edwin. So Tracy's mum and dad are there and, I, and, I, and I've got the baby and I, he's there. And I go, oh, yeah, we're calling him Daniel Edwin. And they all get emotional and all that. And it's a lovely little moment. And then they go. And Tracy went, we were never going to call him Edwin. Why would we ever call him Edwin? And but because her dad had got emotional and we weren't we didn't want to upset him, we just let it stick. <laughs> So he's just called Edwin just because I'm basically he's called Edwin because of my big mouth and not not consulting with my wife. He knows this story, by the way, but it's and he's yeah, I don't know if he's always that impressed by it. But naming in Chaldean culture was really important. So God steps in and God gives Abraham a new name. Beautiful thing. That's the first part of the covenant. It's personal. God always looks at you as an individual and God meets with you. He looks at you as an individual. And then the next one is domestic. You know, uh, it's all about family development. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. Do you know what? I've been asking a lot of leadership things recently. Uh, the, the people are talking about spiritual development is would your spiritual development, would your family notice you've changed spiritually? Do you know what I, mean? I, I mean, so many leaders tell me loads of really great things, but this is where it's going to get noticed the most, isn't it? At home. How, do your family see you growing spiritually? Does your husband see you changing? Does your wife see you changing? Do your kids notice that there's something about you that's different? Anyway, that's a segue, but it's a domestic. I will make you fruitful. I'll make nations of you and kings will come to you. This family will grow. Abraham was always, this is the other fascinating thing. Abraham was always the head of a family. He did war, so he did battle and he did business, but primarily he was the head of a family. The church is primarily a family. The minute people start running church like a business or like an army, they've lost the plot. It's not a business and it's not an army. We can do business and we can go to war, but we're always a family. 
Abraham was always the head of a family. They did business, they went to war, but he was always the head of a family. So there's a family blessing. And then there's a spiritual blessing. You know, uh, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you to be your God. It's a beautiful thing. You know, <laughs> we are primarily on a spiritual journey. Abraham, although it's physical, that we are on this, it's a real marker that this God story is we are, we're on a spiritual journey. Best we don't forget that this isn't about what we do, but it's about who saved us and sent us. Okay. It's never our work. It's always his work. It's a beautiful thing. And then finally, it's territorial, which is a li little bit more challenging for us. Especially this territorial stuff has been used very badly throughout the centuries with colonialism and the Crusades and all that kind of stuff. So you just got, I'm always very conscious when I talk these days about, uh, has anyone else read, there's a really beautiful book called The Anarchy about the East Indian trade companies. It's really fascinating, but it's about the colonial impact that we had on other nations. And sometimes whenever we're, uh, even some of the stuff about when we plant churches, we're just like, Let's take what we do in England and put it in another country. And we still do that now. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's crazy. Anyway, uh, it's territorial. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and to your descendants after you. And I will be their God. Here, here's the interesting thing I think that God says to us through his story is, where is your land? Where, where has God told you to possess? Where should you be? It's a question, the one that I think we could all do with answering. Sometimes God might say, well, this is where you're meant to be right now. Or the land might actually be about geography. I don't think always these days that God is, you know, geographically based. But I do think he gives us land that could be, here's the place where I want you to operate. This is the school I want you to work in. This is the, this is, this is the workplace I've placed you in. These are the people I've surrounded you with. That's your land, you know, and sometimes he might change it. But I think most of the time he just wants to, us to recognize it. This is your land where I'm going to bless you, you know, and I'm going to help you in and I'm going to lead you through. So there is a lot about land in uh, Genesis. Lots about land. But interestingly, the first piece of land that Abraham owned was his wife's burial plot, which is just, just fascinating. There's that actually, you know, it was... Uh, the first piece of land that he actually possessed was, was possessed out of great sadness and grief. And just, there was pain in possession. You know, so we're always going to think about that, but don't, don't, don't let me, don't let me get all maudling on a Sunday morning. You know, let's just keep it trying, but it's worth, worth thinking about. And so then uh, the final thing is this, as a man of faith, Abraham's faith is tested once more. So we're 10 chapters in Genesis 12, God throws a whole load of ambiguities at him. And he says, yes, 10 chapters of the life of Abraham and we get to Genesis 22 verse 1 to 3 and the promise has been fulfilled the promise was really going to be fulfilled in having a child and by that point Sarah had miraculously given birth to a baby called Isaac and Isaac was now like 13 14 okay and so a everything Abraham had lived for he saw right there oh my goodness my 99 year old wife has had a baby right 
God has done something miraculous in our midst. He's promised he's going to do something. We've lived by faith. And right here towards the end, God has revealed to us that it's going to happen. Imagine how he must have felt. He must have thought, oh, I'm so glad I stepped out. I would never have seen this miracle if I'd never stepped out. If I'd have never gone for it, I'd have never seen this. And there we have Isaac. The, the, it was so important to have a firstborn son for these guys. You understand? It was, it was, it was like culturally, it was the way forward. It was the only way that the tribe would be sustained. And we can't, we don't want to read our culture back into their culture and say, well, it could have been a woman and all. It should, you know, back then it was, that's how it was. And we, we, we can't, we don't want to be like ethnocentric and put that back, put our history back in their history. We have to see it as it is then. Of course, it's not the ideal now, but he has this son. And in that, he, he can actually finally see that every, he's in the land, he's got a son, everything God has promised, it's there and it's moving on. And God's, uh, Genesis 22, one to three, God says this, sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to Abraham, here I am. No, he said, Abraham. And Abraham went, here I am. A lot of commentators say that's an incredibly brave thing. But if you were to unpack that a little bit, he's, Abraham said, yeah, here I am. I'm ready. Whatever you want. It's, there's a lot of activity in the here I am in Genesis 22, verse 1. It's, it, it, it's, and, you know, it, and you hear that when you go right, when we do this God story, when you go further through it, there's quite a lot of that here I am. For, you know, like, so uh, Samuel, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. It's a here I am moment. Isaiah, Isaiah 6, you know, uh, here I am, send me. It, there's, there's just a, there's a lot of it so, I mean, and you can read it there's a lot of willingness to obey and quite quickly in in this stuff so so God, he says here I am and then God says this take your son your only son by the way uh, whom you love Isaac so God God knows this is a big deal uh, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain <laughs> well, it's mental Sorry, you're not allowed to say that either these days, are you? But it's like, it's nuts, isn't it? Everything you've lived for. And don't worry, I'm, I'm landing this, by the way. I've got two minutes to land all of this. So it, and it's just, it's crazy. By the way, Moriah was where, was the place where the temple was built. And it was also the place where Calvary was. So just, if you want to have a little, like, dig back. So it's almost like, this is the place that where God's where the temple was built to worship. And this was the place nearby where Christ was crucified. And in Genesis 12, no, Genesis 22, early doors, God is already sending Abraham there to make sacrifices. Uh, I'm just, just saying the sacrifices of the temple and the sacrifice on the mountain was first mirrored by the sacrifice that Abraham was meant to do to Isaac. So interesting stuff. Just interesting. So he goes off. He says, here I am. And he lives by faith. His common sense, this is stupid, this is ridiculous. God's just give me a child. You know, his human affection, I love this boy. And his lifelong ambition were all put on the line. Yeah. So like this, this, is, this doesn't, you know, faith will often be like that, right? Common sense. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. It just doesn't make sense. I should, you know, you should get your qualifications, get a job, build it, you know, do all the right things. It doesn't make sense to live the way that you're living. And then human affection. Sometimes we're just like, I love this. I, I, I don't want to leave. I, you know, so it's human affection towards his son. And then lifelong ambition. Sometimes we have dreams and we want to do things. And God's saying, no, nah, don't worry about them. Lay them down. <laughs> and, so, and Abraham's willing to do all of that. Oh, even after the journey, you know, from, you know, going, building altars. He's gone off. He's been through Egypt. He's tried to outwork it through Hagar. He's saved. 
You know, he saved Lot. There's all sorts of things that have gone on. And he's finally got everything that God has promised. And God says, go and, go and kill it. Go and kill it. God will test your faith. <laughs> God will. And Abraham's faith was tested. And, and it says this. Our father Abraham considered righteous was was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see that his faith and his actions were working together. This is James 2, by the way. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. He was called God's friend. And so you and I were friends of God and we're called to live by faith like Abraham. If we learn anything from this story, that Abraham is a man of faith and he called and, and it echoes so early in the Bible. Live by faith. Live by faith. Don't live by sight. Live by faith. Live, be sacrificial. Build things for God. Don't build them for you. You know, it, it just keeps echoing, echoing, echoing through to us. And this is the story of God. So early on, there's so much in it. And uh, that's my encouragement to you this morning. Thank you.